I've never been in trouble in my life. I didn't even have a parking ticket. I didn't, you know what I mean? I, I was brought up like cops are the, the good guys. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I do know that everything was stacked against me. Everything, like everything. Never been in trouble, and here I am, got a life bid, and I'm like, I don't know when I'm ever going to get out of here. And I didn't have the death penalty good thing because they probably would have executed me. I grew up trusting the systems. I grew up believing that every human being should do the right thing. And that's why, even though I knew I was dealing with corrupt people, I was not going to bribe anyone to get me out of prison because I wouldn't live with the fact that I bribed my way out of my wife's death. I'm not innocent until proven guilty. I'm guilty until I prove my innocence, and that's absolutely what happened to me. Our system, since I've been out 10 years, it's come a little ways, but it's still broken. I totally lost trust in humanity after what happened to me. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. That's me. And today we're going to do something we've never done before. Um, and I'm really excited about it. Uh, we have two guests today, DeMarco Carpenter and Malcolm Scott, who were co-defendants and now are co-exonerees, both, convi- both wrongfully convicted of a murder and both exonerated 22 years later. They were ultimately exonerated in an incredible twist of fate when the actual killer, Michael Wilson, as he was about to be executed, came clean and admitted, which he had done previously, but he said it again, that he was the killer and that these men were not involved. You have to hear this story to believe it. Um, guys, I'm, I'm, I always say this, I'm, I'm sorry you're here, but I'm happy you're here. So, uh, DeMarco, Malcolm, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting us to the show. Yes, yes. Thank you, Jason. I really appreciate this opportunity to even be here in the big city of New York. It's a beautiful thing. And to be on your show talking about something that I think is very, very important that the people need to hear. And it's hot here in New York, just like Oklahoma. So you guys probably feeling at home, even though it's got to be a little bit of culture shock, too. Yeah, but, yeah uh, it really was. So this is, a, this is a Tulsa case. And it's interesting because, well, DeMarco, your case has been featured on the Buried Alive podcast, which is based on writings that you did in prison. Um, and I've been listening to that podcast, uh, which I recommend to everyone. And I feel like I got a history lesson, you know, mm-hmm. uh, along the way, which is really great. Um, but... You know, there's a real significance to Oklahoma um, that I think it's important for people to know about. It is the incarceration capital of the United States now. It's now past Louisiana as the place where there's more people locked up per capita than anywhere else in the United States. And, of course, the United States is the is the incarceration nation, right? So you're dealing with the worst state in the worst country in the world in that sense. And you guys were caught up in that. Um, so let's go back because this takes us back to the 90s, right? Actually, yes, early 90s. 1994. Right. Now, you guys grew up, did you know each other growing up? Oh, yeah, we actually did. We, we were friends before we even got incarcerated. And that's Malcolm talking. You'll get used to the voices on the air. But uh, So you were friends growing up. And you grew up in, in a rough neighborhood by anybody's definition, Yes, right? definitely. Um, and so, and I know I heard you talking about it, um, listening to, to the other podcast, the Birdie Live podcast, about how you were pretty much surrounded by people who were in gangs. Uh-huh. 
And because I know when people read the description, they say these guys were suspected gang members and stuff like that. And I think for a lot of people, they say, whoa, well, this guy doesn't sound like such a good guy. But in fact, that's a very nuanced situation, right? Because you really didn't have, and I thought you described this very eloquently, um, you really don't have much of an option in that situation, right? I mean, you were never formally a gang member, but you were friends with some of the gang yes, members. Yes, all my friends. Everyone who I grew up with was my friends, and some of them was in gangs, so. Right, so then the authorities try to paint that picture and say this guy's a gang affiliate or whatever it is, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Realizing that you have literally no options. Like, nah. you can't be an island, yeah. In your own neighborhood, right, and and there's consequences that come with that as well, and and was that the same situation for you, Malcolm? Oh yeah, basically. I mean, I uh, I grew up around gangs. I mean, a lot of uh, older, you know, people in, in my family, uh, friends that I had knew actually went to school with. So you know, back then, it was much easier because you didn't look at these people as gang members. You looked at them more. These are just my friends. Before they even get involved in the gangs or anything we were already friends and some of them were already my family so i didn't all of a sudden say okay well you're a gang member now you're no longer my family you know what i mean so when you hang out with these people you're just looking at them as everyday family and friends so you you don't see it as how the rest of the world may have seen them so when a situation occurs where you you get seen with them or something like that they automatically think oh, well, you must be a gang member also because you're with these people. But they don't realize, hey, this is my family. And that's where you live. You know what I mean? This is where I live. This is the people I go around. We hang out sometimes. That doesn't mean that I go do things that they may do. You know what I mean? And it's geography. I mean, it's a big part of it. And that's one thing I do want to talk about before we get into the crazy details of your case um, and the 22 years that you guys spent in prison for something that should have been clear from the very beginning that you didn't do, and the, and the, and the very dramatic way in which it came to light as a guy who was about to be executed reiterated what he had said all along, which was that you guys weren't the guys, and he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was executed, of course, for a separate crime that he committed, yes. uh, which he should have been in prison in the first place for this crime, and that person wouldn't have been killed. In, and that was a terrible, uh, brutal, brutal beating crime, br- a beating murder of a clerk in a convenience store. But um, Tulsa has a particular significance because of the fact that uh, – Going back, well, 100 years now, right? Tulsa yeah. was the sort of the epicenter of black culture in the mm-hmm. United States. It was it was called the Black Wall black Street, Wall Street, right? Yes, 1921. And I don't think that. a lot of people are really as familiar with that history as they should be. Um, but it was the place where you had a higher percentage of African Americans who were doctors, uh, pharmacists, lawyers, mm-hmm. professional scholars. Um, it was the place... Um, to be really, um, and and then that terrible day happened. Uh, they call it the the, the race riots, but yeah. in fact, it wasn't a race riot. It was, it was a massacre. A ma- it was a massacre and yeah. a mass lynching. Yeah, um, and it's really one of the most shameful days in the history of America when you think about it. What can you explain what happened in that situation? Because you you obviously know the history yes. very well. Uh, from what I understand. A white woman got in the elevator along with a black man, and yeah, it was a black man named Dick Rowland, and that's partially why the whole incident of the 1921 race massacre happened. You know, after they get in the elevator, no one really knows what happened because only those two were in there. And when the elevator came, it opened, she came running out, 
crying and yelling and wailing and you know, it, no one really knows what happened while they was in the, in, in the elevator. But after that, you know, that's where it just it went crazy. Well, know? what happened? What, what happened was he was arrested um, based on her complaint to the authorities. Now, it, it is an elevator ride. There's a limit to how much can happen in an mm-hmm. elevator ride. Um, it wasn't even a skyscraper, right? We're talking about 1921. But then he was arrested, and a lynch mob formed, and the sheriff wouldn't allow the mob to uh, to take this guy out of jail, mm-hmm. uh, this Roland guy, and 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 kill him. And because of that, the anger grew and welled over into this riot that involved burning down uh, over a thousand homes, yeah, killing over three hundred African American people, uh, destroying basically every black-owned business in town. And turned what was this um, sort of oasis of culture and community into a, literally a wasteland. You had uh, families that were missing uh, fathers and mothers. You had, um, you know, hundreds of dead bodies, and and basically all the businesses destroyed. And and so, it's it's important to reflect on that as we fast forward to the time that you guys grew up in in the 80s and 90s where Tulsa had become a very violent, or that area of Tulsa that you lived in had become a violent mm-hmm. ghetto. Um, you know, And there's at least a case to be made that gangs may have originated as a means of community members trying to protect themselves from this sort of a massacre. Let's not forget there were machine guns involved, right, back then. There were people yes. yeah. spraying, uh, yes. like government people with government the flag. Government officials, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really impossible to overstate the horror of what happened. But, you know, and, and no one's trying to justify gang behavior uh, and what it's become in the modern day. But when you look at the history, it's sort of, it, it does put a certain you know, context in it that's important for everyone to be aware of. So so let's fast forward to September 10th, 1994, um, which is a day that a uh, 19-year-old woman named Karen Summers was fatally shot in the back. And two young men, 16-year-old men, uh, boys, were injured. Uh, both of them shot Alonzo Johnson and Kenneth Price. And it seemed like originally they found the right guy, but they how did it get so screwed up where they had the, and this always makes me crazy and, and, I'm, and I didn't even go through it, but they originally targeted Michael Wilson, who was the actual perpetrator, but somehow or other it shifted to you guys. What happened? And Michael Wilson, he also got caught with the murder weapon and the car used in this drive-by, and that's where it get crazy when it shifts shifts to us, you know. So wait, so this crime, this really came with instructions, right? I mean, you're, you're right out of the police academy. Yeah. This one's like a gift. Here, right? Yes. I got the whole thing for you on a silver platter. Yes. So why would they go off that? They got the guy. Why Did they particularly want you guys for some reason? Uh, I believe that Michael Wilson was an informant. And once he got caught, you know, they didn't want to let him go away. They wanted to still use him. But once he caught that other case two months later, that's when... You know, they couldn't deny, okay, we can't save him now. They were willing to sort of turn a blind eye to the murder of of Karen Summers, as well as the shooting of these two other young men uh, who who hopefully recovered. Um, And they were willing to allow this 
guy who they knew was a killer mm -hmm. to stay on the streets just to protect their own uh, well, it's for their convenience, right? That they wanted to continue to use him as an informant, and and on top of that, those were, was black kids. They didn't care that you know the crime was committed against black. So, right, it was um, black on black, black crime, on black, and and he was black. The, the kids yeah. were black when he was shot. You guys were black, uh -huh. so it was kind of like everybody's kind of disposable, including you two guys who are going to go to prison for the rest of your life. Yes. So, was it Wilson that? decided, hey, I'm going to save myself and just give up a couple of names of guys I know from the area? Or how did that – do you understand how that happened? I think, uh, me myself, I believe that they uh, had made some mistakes with Wilson. Like, I think they had went into his house illegally, got the gun. You know, they had made a lot of formal mistakes. I believe that hadn't they not allowed him to cooperate with them, they would have all basically – destroyed the case because I, I think like if they had not been able to go in there into his, his house and get that murder weapon they wouldn't have been able to go into his car they wouldn't have any of that evidence I think that that they, they would been able to use but once they did it without any type of search and seizure because there was never any search and seizure warrant or anything to go in his house and get that murder weapon you see so I, I truly believe like the, the police had made a lot of mistakes within the case that they wanted to cover up. And and they would have lost the case had they not allowed Michael Wilson to cooperate and help them bring someone else into the case. And, you know, and, and I the, think because we seen them that night, that was a perfect opportunity to for them to use us. And the bullet recovered from the body of the victim, well, there are three victims, but the woman who was murdered, Karen Summers, that was traced uh, or matched with the gun that was used in the shooting, right? Exactly. So, again, another bullseye, so to speak, of, of evidence. And then they found a, round, a, a way around that, right, by, by saying that, that, that he I had lent you the he, bullets? Yes, or, I he mean, gave like, me three bullets. And I don't understand, like, three bullets, three victims and three bullets. But he had gave me the bullets and... You know, it still doesn't make sense. Is that like a common thing for someone to just give somebody some bullets like here, like <laughs> yeah. under the Christmas tree, or how yeah. does that even work? Yeah, that, I don't even understand yeah, that. Like, yeah. here's three bullets, and that's what he said, three bullets. He gave me three bullets. And you just had three lucky shots. Three lucky shots. Only, so there was happened. only three you needed. That's all I needed. Were you three. like an expert marksman at 17 years old? <laughs> had you been in the, in the military? Never, never. Right. That is well, crazy. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> 17. That's just ludicrous. Yeah. The whole thing is, I mean, it would be funny if not for the, of the consequences, yes. not only to you, but to the other victim, which is, again, and I talk about this all the time on the show, on Wrongful Conviction, the idea that Wilson was free after a period of time and went off and committed this, this gruesome murder where mm. he, he beats, literally beat somebody Literally to death. beat somebody to death with a bat, a right. baseball bat. And, and, and he was just a clerk in a convenience store. Yes. This was like, I mean, nobody deserves that fate, but this is no. an innocent person who is, he and his family, and and his friends, everybody are victims in this in this in this sort of uh, um, this conspiracy to frame you guys. Yeah, I mean, there's not it's not only you and your families that are victimized. It's society, right? Because yeah. that that guy working in the store, who knows what he was going to do, go do with his life, right? I think I mean, he left behind a, a wife and two children. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, That's really Richard Yeltsin. Really yeah. To think about yeah, that, it's Richard just. Yells. Yeah, what I mean, it's it's sort of I, I don't doesn't listen. There's a lot of things in the world I don't understand, especially these days. But that's one of them. I don't understand how people can sleep at night 
when they go around, and I'm speaking specifically in this case about the the police and the prosecutors. Um, and I always say on this show, there's a lot of good police and a lot of good prosecutors out there, but the bad ones do a tremendous amount of damage, and the, and the ripple effect of that damage can be felt throughout the community, and it puts everybody at risk when when this uh, when this is allowed to con- this stuff is allowed to continue, and and it and it does, and it's it's horrible. So you guys now you find yourselves arrested and charged with this murder. Did you have alibis? Did you have? Uh, I mean, I'm assuming you had public defenders in the case, right? Oh yes, yeah, yeah definitely yeah. public defenders, and I did have an alibi. We both had alibis. Yeah, we had some actually pretty good alibis. I mean, people who were citizens, never being convicted of any crimes or anything, and. My attorney never even called them up there to testify for us. He told us, well, you probably won't even really need them. You know, they don't really have nothing on you guys. Won't, like, won't really need the witnesses <laughs> yeah. who can make what sure you, you don't, don't go to prison for the rest of your exactly. life. Nah, that would be like, why? I mean, yeah. you don't, it sounds yeah. like a lot of extra time. The guy probably had places to be. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and, and I don't understand it, but. You know. I mean, and you're you're living through this as I mean, still you're you know you're you're closer to a, a I mean you're you're halfway between a child and a man at that point, right? Because we know that that the brain, the adolescent brain, doesn't fully form until 25 years old. So you're eight years away from that, and this whole thing is spinning around you, and you got this lawyer telling you, I mean. Did you? Did, let me ask you public this. Public defender. Public defender. Yeah. Was he represent? <laughs> we represent. No, yeah, we had two different ones, but they was both trash. And you were you were tried together? Yes. Um, so you had two public defenders who were useless. Um, I don't really understand uh, how. Who, who in which my public defender, Stephen Sewell, after I got found guilty, he went over and worked for the district attorney. Hmm. Well, there does raise a couple of interesting. Oh, yeah. yeah. Those questions right I, there. I truly believe there was a lot of, you know, Little shady dealing yes, there. Things going on up under the table, behind the scenes. I mean, I mean, that just as much as I was saying earlier about a lot of mistakes that the police have made and were covering up. I mean, once you've made a mistake like that, and then this guy that you let out goes and you know murders a guy in cold blood, beats him to death, you have to continue this charade. You cannot admit now, well, we made a mistake on these other guys and let him out to do this. Right. You can't. You can't admit that to the public. Was the guy who was killed, what was the guy's name who was killed in the store? That Richard will, Yost. Richard Yost. Was he white or black? He was white. Right. Even worse for them then, right? Yeah. Exactly. Because now they're responsible for the death of a, of a, of a white citizen, right? Yeah. 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 And it's back to the Tulsa thing, which is such a strange place when you look at, it, at the history. So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So at that point, you, you really, I mean, here, isn't that ironic, too, because... Here you got this guy who two months, and it sort of reminds me of the Central Park Five case in a certain way, but two months after you guys are wrongfully arrested and they ignore the fact that they knew, because they knew, they knew Wilson was the guy. Oh, they definitely knew. They definitely knew. Like I said, this one was obvious, as obvious as could be. Um, And not just in hindsight, but right at the time. So you would think in, in an objective way that once this once you guys found out that he had gone on and killed this guy Yost, you would go, well, okay, that proves that this guy was the guy and we should be going home now. But in fact, it actually had the opposite effect because it caused them to dig in deeper, dig their heels in deeper into this false narrative that they were promoting. Exactly. And so it actually was even worse that the fact that this guy had gone and and committed this other horrible crime. And on top of that, 10 months prior to that, this whole incident with Karen Summer and Michael Wilson 
I was shot. I got shot ten months prior to that. How'd that happen? I was at the, at a oh, it was a club called the Wagon Wheel, and it was a lot of older people. And an old man, some youngsters, some young guys robbed this old man, and the old man came back and shot the club up. That's at least one of the stories I heard. I've heard many stories of who shot that club up that night. So a guy just came in guns blazing into a dark that, club. It was a drive-by. And I, to this day, I don't know what happened or who, who did it, but, you know, I, 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 I had a colostomy bag. You know, I wore a colostomy <laughs> bag for three years, and, you know, I had a brace on this arm over here, and they took – muscles out my leg to put in my stomach and a tracheostomy and all that so fast forward to the time of the crime when they arrest me i'm in no physical condition to you know do get around or do nothing barely you know i can i have a brace on my arm i'm 6'3 163 pounds soaking wet you know and i'm not healthy you know i'm barely walking i had to learn how to walk i was in the hospital for three months and you can check check the records, but I was in the hospital three months, you know. And two months after being released from the hospital, they took the pins out my arm because I had pins on my arm and I had a brace. When I was arrested, I, ha- I had a brace on my arm, and they told me I couldn't wear this brace in the county jail. So, you know, my arm is, you know, they actually wanted to cut my arm off. My mama told them, no, don't cut my baby's arm off. So, you know, and that's on top of everything else. Cut your arm off. Cut my arm off, yes. Because it's inconvenient to have you in there with the brace on. Yes. And it just so <laughs> happened, Malcolm, this night that yeah. this, when I was shot, Malcolm was there and his cousin, big Marlon Williams, and they saved my life. You know, they picked me up, put me in the back of Marlon's car, was headed to the hospital, saw an ambulance, flagged him down, and, you know, and that saved my life. So you were shot in the stomach and the arm. Yes. Yeah, and and he's uh, you guys you can't see it on the on the radio obviously, but he just showed me the scars and there, that's no joke. I mean, it wasn't a grazing wound. It was like uh, this is. It's, I mean, you were really shot. Yeah. How many times were you shot, Demarco? I'm not sure. I've heard five. I heard seven. Two different uh, caliber of guns. So I'm not sure. Oh my God! You don't yes. even know how many times you were shot. No, I thought I you were shot twice. Uh, yeah. So this guy came like spraying bullets. Yes. Spraying. It wasn't. It oh. was definitely, it was a real drive-by. Whoever opened that door, he was going to shoot him. And because, like, when the door opened, because I think you were in front of me. Mm-hmm. And I was behind him, and it was like a, it was an older, older guy coming out, too. And as we're all going out, as soon as the door opened, we heard the shots. It was immediate then, you know. So, and he was shot right there in the door because he was the first one out the door. And I remember standing behind him because I had got shot in the leg. Oh, you got shot too? Yeah, yeah. I didn't get none of what he got. I just got uh, basically it went in and out the leg. He got shot with basically most of everything. And then there was another older guy that was coming out with us. He got shot also. It was like three. Yeah. It was like three or four. It was Eleven people got shot. It was Jesus. 11? Eleven. Eleven people got shot. And yeah, because he didn't. He, it wasn't so much as a drive-by. He he actually stopped the car. Like, when that door came open, because when he, DeMarco got shot, he fell into the door. He didn't realize that. He didn't know. I, I can probably tell you a story better because he, he was unconscious. Like, he fell right there in the door once he got hit. So the door, his body kept the door open. So once the dude continued to shoot, whoever was out there, because it's a small little dance floor that's, like, right there in front of this little, you know, little juke joint, you know what I mean? 
And uh, so everybody who was out there kind of basically on that dance floor was probably some of those 11 people that got shot because the dude was still shooting into the door once he fell into the door, fell with the door and held the door open with his body. The guy was still shooting. Man, you had some, uh, some couple of months there. Jesus Christ, yeah. both of you guys. Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people. What do you think? This, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best, and then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses and you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone and then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing. They're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. You go to trial, and your attorneys are dumb and dumber, mm-hmm. basically, right? Basically. Well, and and that's being kind, because we don't know that one of them wasn't, at least one of them wasn't yeah. on actually making a deal. Yeah, because he worked in a district attorney's office after yeah. I got con- convicted. Right, kind of like, so, uh, thanks a lot. Know, so here, here y'all go. I think originally we had Steve Sewell together. We had the same attorney together originally, I guess, and then once it went on further, they separated it. And they brought on Michael Harris, who was my attorney, and he took over my part of my case. And I think Steve Sewell did his part, and they were supposed to work together. We still went to trial together. You know, they were having issues where they weren't even really wanting to work together. Like I said, it, it was really 
you know, kind of let's push these guys under the rug. Let's get them out of the way. You know, we don't we don't need this type of uh, you know bad publicity upon this, especially this serious death penalty case, which was Michael Wilson. You know, that kind of took over as a more serious case because you know, of course, it was a death penalty situation, and you know, it was here was this guy who was a clerk at a you know convenience store to lose his life, a wife and children, small children left behind. So it was more of a, a, a storybook for people to want to look at. And for them to admit, hey, we let this guy out to do this. You know, I think that, that, that in itself was very, very, I think, important and key in, the, in, the, in their pursuit to make sure that they convicted us. And you know I can't let this go without talking about the fact that in America the I don't have the exact statistics in front of me, but the odds of a of the death penalty being uh, of the sentence being given of, of death when it's a black perpetrator and a white victim are exponentially higher than if it's the other way around, or even if it's black on black, or even white on white crime, um, and that's something that persists from you know. Uh, from from back in the day, and it's it's uh, it, 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 I mean look, we shouldn't have a death penalty anyway, in my opinion, but um, but certainly it's not it's not uh, meted out in in a manner that is fair, um, if there could even be such a thing, you know, it has a it has a clear racial bias, and um, it's not uh, it's not something that anybody of good conscience should be okay with. And I always say to people when I talk to somebody who's in favor of the death penalty, my thing is, well, what percentage of innocent people are you okay with executing? Oh, no, no, I'm executing people. I don't, well, but, but, but you now say to somebody, I had this conversation with somebody recently. But you know the system doesn't work. Oh, yeah, yeah, but the system not, doesn't work that good. Oh, there's a lot of corruption. Okay, so then I go back to the same question. What percentage of innocent people are you okay with? Is it 10%? Is it 1%? Which people? How do you, like, because you, know, you, exactly. can't, you can't look at it any other way. The system, and somebody said, oh, we've got to fix the system. Wouldn't, uh, you know, yeah, okay. It's not, <laughs> what are you talking about? It's so broken, yeah. and it never could be, could be fixed. You know, it's... It's impossible to have a perfect system, even if everybody is doing their job the way they're supposed to. Even if you had, in your case, you hit the jackpot, right? The reverse jackpot, because yeah. you had you had cops and prosecutors who were willing to lie and cover up and and uh, and do whatever they had to do, um, and you had incompetent defense attorneys. If all those things didn't line up, I can't believe any of you guys would have been convicted. Oh no. No, because I mean, even if you had, and and where were these the witnesses who were prepared to testify as to your both of your alibis? Were they in the court? In yeah. the courtroom, yeah, yeah. they were right there. Yeah, yes, they right were. there. Yeah. So it would have been as 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 difficult as uh would like to call the witness, Your Honor. Okay, that would have been it. Yeah. And the next thing you know, they would have been on the stand going, No, 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 Malcolm was over at my spot or whatever the hell it was, right? Exactly. But it was too much trouble for the defense attorney. I mean, were you when when this was going on? Were you there, like, elbowing your guy, going, hey, hey, call? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, gave, him, I gave him the full names of, of everyone. No, but I mean, when you're in the courtroom, right, yeah. you're, you're, you're experiencing this, this horror show unfolding in real time. You know the rest of your life is at stake. You're 17 years old. Exactly. And, and you know the witnesses are sitting right behind you. And, and are you able to actually tell your attorney, hey, I want you to call? Yes. 
Yes, I told Sword, hey, hey, call this person here. Call Melissa Shields. She was there. She, you know, he didn't call none of the the people. My brothers, you know, all these people who was there at my house. You know, Lori Oldman, all these different witnesses who were there in the courtroom. At least five or six people that they could have called. He didn't call any of them. Even though you were telling him to yeah, do Yeah, call him. And I'm telling him, hey, right there. You know, he said this here. That's not true. Because I'm writing stuff down, at you know, or whispering in his ear. That's not true. He said this here. You know, call this person. This person right here. They can, you know. They can tell you the truth, basically. This is like, I mean, I think everybody's had that dream in their life, at least one show, of drowning, right? This is literally yeah. like you're watching yourself drown yeah. in real time. And so this this whole procedure took how long? Trial was about, what, two days? I want to say three. Was it three? The last, they, what was they deliberate for, nine hours? They deliberated nine hours. Nine hours. Was yeah. the jury, what was the makeup of the jury? It was all white. Oh, all white. One, one, one black, was it? Was it the old lady? Yeah, I remember. It was the old lady. I remember because they asked her some questions, and they asked her, and she said, yeah, I volunteer for the police department. I do some kind of volunteer work for the police department. And they still allowed her to be up there. So like the my mo- lawyer was like, this is the best we can get. So the one black juror worked for the police department. Yeah, she was a volunteer. She, she wow. said she did volunteer work for the police. Wow. This was our one black juror. You know well, what I mean? Just, and I'm did. like, aren't you going to be trying to get rid of her? She's saying she's, well, she's the only black up there. That's all we got. And I'm like, that's not helping us. Like, I mean, that's going to make it worse, if anything. Like, Wow. That's just really. And she did some more volunteer work for the police department by convicting you guys. Exactly. Right? So, so then... This trial, you know, it's it's amazing when you look at the elapsed time in the different areas, right? So you're in jail for over a year waiting your trial, and then the trial takes two days, maybe three days, nothing. It's gone in a blink of an eye. I mean, civil trials take a lot longer than that. So two or three days you're in court. Uh, so the jury goes out, and they're deliberating. Did you think you had a chance in hell of being exonerated, or were you basically at this point like, this is, we're done? Me, personally, you know, I, I believe that I was innocent. So I was like, ain't no way that they can convict us. Even though all this evidence is against us, we were innocent. We were innocent. What about you, Malcolm? Did you believe in the system even before this? And and when they yeah. went out, I mean, were you guys able to talk to each other during oh, this? Yeah, we were. Well, we were sitting waiting for the jury's deliberation. I think we were up there together. Yeah. I mean, I felt like... And why they just... Not to cut you off, but why they... We was waiting on them today to deliberate, and they came back and told us that, you know, we can cop settle out for some time. Oh, they offered you a deal. They offered us a deal. Why are we waiting on the jury to deliberate? What was the deal? I remember they came back with eight years for me. Or, and you yeah. too? No, they never came to me with eight years. Yeah. That's weird. Why, why they deliberate? Like they years. came... They wanted me to test... They wanted me to say Malcolm did it. Oh. Yeah. Why are they deliberating? Yeah, they so, they kept trying to get him to to take me down. You know, I think it was because the evidence was looking funny. So they they were really pushing for him to, you know, kept giving him offers of smaller sentences, but he wouldn't take it. Right, and isn't that interesting too because if they actually thought that you were a murderer, there's no way they're going to offer you 8 years. Mm-hmm. So they arrested you for a crime that you didn't commit. Then they want to cut your arm off. <laughs> and now they're trying to get you to cut your friend off, uh, right, yeah. in a symbolic way. And 
and still go to prison for eight years. Yeah. It's like, oh, and by the way, we have something behind door number three. Um, so, so you didn't take the deal, obviously. And no. the jury comes back in. And, and what was that moment like, if you can explain for each of you guys? I mean, obviously the worst moment of your life. Um, and they come back in. Uh, I'm assuming they didn't look at you, and you probably had a sense when they came in. But can you paint a picture of the courtroom? Was it hot? Was it cold? Was it noisy? Was there people there? What was the whole scenario? Put, try to put the audience in your shoes as best as you can. For me, that was the longest few minutes ever, you know, waiting for them to give the verdict. And when they came back with a guilty verdict, you know, it's like everything stopped. I'm moving in slow motion, and it just, I'm watching people. I'm looking around. My family, they're crying, and, you know, it's its warm in there. It got warmer, and... You know, something dropped. I don't know if it was, you know, my heart, but I, it was, it was a terrible moment for me. But I didn't cry. You know, I, I, I felt like I had to stay strong for my family that was looking. But, you know, it was, it was heartbreaking. I mean, for me, like, I'm gonna be honest. Like, just talking about it right now, my heart is beating fast. Just bringing back that memory you know, of a day in my life that I'll never, ever forget. I mean, I don't know. I felt like every, like, bowel movements and everything were better to just give away. It was almost like when that last breath of life goes out of a person and they lose all, you know what I mean, control of their bodies or something. And it's like I felt that way. It was like my life had just ended and I was looking at me and seeing it. And I was saying like, why is this happening? This isn't supposed to happen this way. I'm innocent. I know I'm innocent. I know I had nothing to do with this. How is this possible? How is this possible? This is what I kept saying to myself and thinking as my heart was beating so fast. And I'll never ever forget that moment and then it gets, it, just when you think it can't get worse, it gets worse because you guys were sentenced to life in prison plus 170 years, which is, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I don't understand our system. What do you need life plus? A, is that in case you come back to life yeah, or you go back in another 170 years? And what is 170 years? How long were you guys expected to live? I mean, mm. and so, so now uh, off you go to to prison, um, maximum security prison, obviously, right, for this yes. crime in Oklahoma. Yes. And is that, is that, was that as bad as it sounds? Oh, it was worse. It was worse. When I pulled up at the prison, someone was being executed. It was real quiet. And when I saw the prison, it looked like death look like death so you know I'm looking at this place McAllister you know I'm like whoa you know this is where I'm supposed to have to be you know it was a terrible feeling yeah I think it was because of the fact that we had to automatically go to a maximum security prison so we had to go to basically the worst prison in Oklahoma at the time 
you know, at 18 years old. We had finally turned 18. And so we were basically still kids, and we were stepping into the worst prison system, you know, first prison in that uh, state. And so, you know, of course, it was definitely fear and, you know, uh, confusion and, and concern and worry of, you know, what may happen, what, but, you know, and it's like now you're going to this, this mind of okay, I got, I got to survive, I gotta, I gotta make it through this, you know, and and there's no one else that's gonna protect me. There's no mama, there's no daddy, there's no, no one, no, it's you. So now you have to, at 18, be, you know, the 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 man, you know, of yourself. Like you have to be the the pure protector of you. There is no one else there for you but yourself. And you have to step into that and realize I may have to face this for the rest of my life. And, so. and you know, to paint a picture, um, DeMarco's a, a, a big man, 6'3", but you were in a weakened state, obviously, mm-hmm. because of your injuries, having been shot however many times. Yeah. And and Malcolm, you're you're a guy who's in shape, but you're not a particularly physically imposing yeah. guy. You're not like a a large large guy. And even if you were, it doesn't even matter, from what I understand, right? I mean, you're going to be uh, you're going to be faced with terrible situations oh, yeah. in there, regardless. Yeah, that, yeah the size isn't, isn't so much. For, I mean, keep in mind though, I was 18 then. I'm I'm 41 years old now. I've I've grown in a lot of what I put on right now. The muscle I put on has come from years and years of, you know, exercising and, and 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 building. But at that time, I was a kid coming straight from the streets, basically, sitting in a county jail, laying on a bunk. So there was no none of the physical physique or anything like that. So you had to basically go on, you know, just coming in with your heart. And and even in there, like a, a guy with size, that only means they're gonna bring three or four of them instead of just one when they come for you. And, you know, size and things like that don't really come into play when you got these guys with with shields and knives and stuff coming at you. So, I mean, in in the system, you know, size of your physique, I don't think is more important than really your heart and and using your mind and and, and being able to, to overcome the fear of, you know, anyone out there and being ready to protect yourself in whatever situation may occur. Well, first of all, it's incredible that you guys survived this ordeal, um, 22 years in, in places like that. Um, but it also is a very unusual and, uh, um, I think, uh, important story for people to hear of how the legal process unfolded that resulted in you being here, mm-hmm. right? Yes. When, when if it was up to the authorities, you would have died in prison um, sooner or later. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it involves a number of things that are remarkable, right? Including the witnesses recanting, yeah. right? Um, and you know, we know that that's not as uncommon as people think, but. You know, and of course, it's worth talking about the fact that in over half of all the wrongful, all the exonerations, the thousands of exonerations that have happened in this country now, uh, over half of them involve police and prosecutorial misconduct. So we probably shouldn't be shocked by that either. We have scandals going on right in New York State right now. 
So, because you had your you had your convictions upheld on appeal two years after you went to prison. Yep. And by now, um, Wilson had been sentenced for the other beating, right? He had yes. been sentenced to death. Was he in the same prison as you guys? Well, he was, but, you know, it's underground. McAllister, they have a death row. It's underground. Underground? Yes. Yeah, yeah. He was separate. You know, death, separate. death, death, row, uh, death separate. row has their own unit that they keep. Uh, the it's guys. like a, literally a dungeon. Yes, yeah. literally. So you get your conviction upheld. Did you guys think you had a chance of, of beating the rap the second time around? Well, for me, I know at the time, you know, when I went in there, I wasn't aware of the uh, appeals process. And it was to the next day, you know, when some of the older guys in the county jail told me that. So while I'm in the county jail, I mean, while I'm in, in McAllister, you know, I'm going to the law library. I'm writing lawyers and letters to whoever and whoever I could think of, whoever I think that could help me. I'm writing letters. So, you know, when they when they came back and they said that the sentence was upheld, you know, it was discouraging. But at the same time, you know, I don't want to die in prison, so I had to continue with, you know, striving to for freedom. So that's me writing letters, me going to the law library, you know, me working out. You know, you want to keep your, you know, your body, you know, is your temple, so you want to stay as healthy as possible. So, you know, it was a lot of things that contributed. Faith, you know, it was my faith because I, I felt that, you know, a higher being didn't allow me to live through getting shot all those times just to come to prison, you know, with a life in 170 years to die in there. So it was, it was faith. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule at your own pace and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash wrongful. And I want to get to Williams and Price, the two guys who falsely testified against you and how they recanted uh, another 13 years later in 2010. But before we do that, Malcolm, how did you... I'm, I'm always uh, in awe of the you know the strength of the human spirit that's uh personified by every single person that sat in those chairs that you guys are sitting in now um but how did you manage to maintain hope in a to- in a truly hopeless situation i mean there, there really was no re- a rational person it seems like would just be like fuck it i can't you know what i mean like you know yeah. and, and a lot of people do give up in there right yeah oh, of definitely. course they do i mean and i think that was one of you know it's good that you said that because i think that's one of the things that 
you know, kind of gave me, you know, that, that, that willpower as well. That was one of the things I think contributed seeing the results of the guys who gave up, you know. Uh, I've seen, I've watched a, a man, an old man, after being in prison for, you know, 30, 40 years, who had given up and he finally died in there. I'm just watching him, you know, wheel him out on the on a gurney. And I think uh, just seeing a lot of things like that was like, I can't go out like that. I, I refuse to allow this to happen. And, and another thing I think that was very important for me was my family. Like, I have a, a I got 12 brothers and sisters, mm. I'll add. And, uh, you know, growing up with my family, you know, we, we didn't have a lot, but we had each other. And I think that's what made us closer because we didn't have a lot. So we, we, we had to make our own fun and games, you know what I mean? So it made us closer. And I think even me going inside, you know, I had to look back out there at my family and, and, and the support that they had given to me. You know, they never, you know, like my mother, you know, uh, like she was my biggest champion. Like she's my biggest fan. Like she never once waved a, a eye and said, I don't believe you or you, you are you sure you didn't have something? You know, it was no question there. It was like when I told her, when I sit down and told her in the county jail, I said, Mama, I didn't do it. Like I didn't have anything to do with it. And it's like she would always knew. Like Mom knew, you, you're lying. I'm going to get your butt, you know what I mean? So I was just like, I'm just going to tell her the truth. But she never once said, you know, uh, are you sure? Or I think you might, you know, it was, okay, son, I'm going to be here for you. And it was never, she never changed from that. You know, even times that I would be like, Mom, I don't know if I can do this anymore. She's, well, you, you got to keep fighting. You got to keep fighting. You got to keep believing. She said to me, she said, God helps those who help themselves. And if and if you want some change for yourself, you got to start doing the things that you need to do to help yourself. Reach out to the right people. Connect to the many people as you possibly can. Don't never be afraid to humble yourself and ask for help. You know, and she stood behind me that whole time. And, and, and her encouragement helped me to to write people like the Innocence Project and, and all these different people. I got turned down a lot, you know, but we never we never gave up. We never gave up, you know, and I think my faith and, and, and my family are like two of the strongest pillars for me to help me get through that situation. So fast-forwarding to 2014, you guys filed a petition seeking a new trial. Um, with the recantations of the state's key witnesses, whose names were Williams and Price, um, they had originally testified that they saw you guys in the car, which mm -hmm. which the authorities knew wasn't your car. Um, it belonged to the killer, uh, Wilson. So they had recanted in 2010 and said that, and this will surprise no one who's a listener of the show, <laughs> Um, that they had th uh, the, the police had threatened to convict them on other charges unless they falsely identified you guys in the first place. So they had finally recanted. So um, 2014 is a crazy year. 
You know, you have Michael Wilson finally executed, mm-hmm. right? Um, and as much as I'm opposed to the death penalty, it doesn't sound like society's going to miss him very much, but I am opposed to the death penalty, and I make that very clear. Um, I don't think that killing justifies killing, um, and I don't think the state should be in the business of killing. So, um, but he's executed, and this is where it's almost like a Hollywood script, right? <laughs> because he has now confessed to the crime in detail, has said over and over again that you guys didn't do it, right? Yes. And the other witnesses have recanted. He gets executed and goes to his death, and his last words are, you know, he's repeating what he's been saying all along. You guys didn't do it. Um, Now, he has very little motivation at this point. Like, what's what's the difference? He's he's going out. Um, But you're still sitting in prison. Yes. Must be confusing as hell when you're sitting there and the whole case against you has completely unraveled. And now you actually had proper representation on top of that, right? Yes. So besides Eric Cullen, who was an investigator, who is representing you guys now? Oklahoma Innocence Project, who got involved in 2011 when Oklahoma got an Innocence Project. Our case was the first case that they took. Wow. Amazing. At the time, I had a, a lawyer hired. And I didn't know how, you know, a lot of legal things worked. I didn't know if it was going to be a conflict of interest or anything. So I contacted uh, my attorney first and was telling him about the letter. And he was immediately on board, like, yes, you you need to get with these people. These people have a lot of influence. They have, a, you know, a lot of connections. You should, you know, you know, allow them to come on board as well because they can reach places that I can't. He was a local attorney, you know. You know, I didn't pay a lot of money for him or whatever, but he was trying to help me as much as he could. And he was like, I'll even go and, you know, speak to him on your behalf, show him a lot of the evidence that I had. He had the, you know, the witness, the testimonies from the recantations of of uh, Rashawn Williams and, and, and Ken Price or whatever. And so he went and, you know, talked to the Innocence Project on my behalf and presented a lot of the evidence that he, you know, he had been gathering himself and, you know, they came back and was like, hey, we're, we're going to help you guys. We're going to, you know, jump on board and, and try to see what we can do to help you guys as well. And, and from that point there, they kind of just, you know, kind of took control. What a what an amazing turn of events that is, yeah. And, and when Michael Wilson, he said Malcolm Scott and DeMarco Carpenter are innocent. And he, he said it on video. Yeah, on video. Then he said it when he was executed. And then it took two years after that. Which is really you know, crazy. And, and I he, thought... And he explained the whole thing. He said the shooting was in retaliation for an earlier incident when yeah. he had been shot. He explained who else was in the car with him. It was the guys at Alverson and Harjo. Um, and finally, we get to May 2016. So this has now been almost 22 years yeah. that you guys have been in prison. Mm-hmm. It was 1994 to 2016. The math is not tricky. <laughs> um, and you end up back in court. This is the flip side, right? This is the... I mean, the proverbial, I would call it a happy ending because we know how many challenges there still are in front of you guys. And yeah. what was that like? So you come back to court. It's it's uh, May uh, May of 2016, May 9th, I think it was, whatever. Yeah. Um, and did you, did you know you were going to be released or was there still an element of suspense in this situation? No, well, we didn't know it. I believed it, but we didn't know it, you yeah. know. Yeah, the suspense was definitely still there. Yeah, it was still there. I mean, I mean because I mean, we 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 we're looking at you know if they could do it this time, you know we're always gonna be until the judge. I had already said. I mean, until the the judge actually says, 
you know, you're innocent and free to go. I was going to be like, please, 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 please let this go right this time. So, yeah, the suspense was definitely still there for me. I would still have my concerns because you got to remember, I mean, if it was so preposterous that this could even happen to us after them, after all this evidence and stuff that they had on this other person and, and they still took us down. So in my mind, it's like, it's nothing that I could put past these people. Like, I, I can't say for sure that, that this is going to happen. You know what I mean? So, so, so explain that moment now, because we, we talked about the moment of, of absolute shock and horror and the, and the worst moment of your life. I'm assuming this was the best moment of your life. Oh, both of your lives. Oh. Um, I see you both nodding. Yeah, I couldn't imagine anything. I don't <laughs> know what could be better. So, and you were there together in court? Yes. yes. Oh, just like back 22 years ago, yes. except yes. the opposite. So yeah. what was that moment like? Families back in the courtroom is almost like a mirror image of the other one, different judge, though. Yeah. This and, one here, I got to say, I think I was sharing this with somebody else. I don't know if you guys remember well, that, that show where the old – cold case where they, they the old cases always come back and they'll kind of run through it where they'll show the guy when he was young and then show him when he's old mm -hmm. it kind of felt like that for me in that scene because you could see like my, when my uh, lawyer got up there he had looked a lot older when Ken Price got up there he looks a lot older like everybody looks you can tell these are the same people but they're a lot older. I've aged and, and you've aged, and I'm looking around the scene, you know what I mean? And and so when it finally gets to that point where the judge, you know, because she read off a lot of different things where she was like, no, I ain't, I'm not giving you this, I'm not giving you that. And I was like, wait a minute, this isn't sounding this is, good. This isn't sounding good at this all. This isn't sounding good at yeah, all. It wasn't she's, sounding she's, good. she's denying a lot of our stuff. Denying, like, yes. Okay, hold up, you know what I mean? But then when she finally got, to the to the biggest one of the new evidence and, and things like that and she she kind of stopped there and went on a longer speech about that last one and so as she started to speak about that one i kind of felt like okay we might we still got this chance and when so when she finally said you know at, at this moment I, I i won't find these these men you know he's actually innocent and and like, I just looked at my mom, and it was just like, man. And she looked at me, and it was like we both, it was like a tear dropped at the same time for us both. It was like, finally. And she was like, yes, you coming home. And it was like she had never once said, I don't think you're going to make it out of there. No matter how sad I would get, no matter how upset she would be like, you're coming home. You're coming home. And at that moment when she said, finally, you're coming. And I just like, it was like the biggest release, I think, for me. Like it was a big release. Like I could finally breathe again and say I have life again. I have life back in me. It was an amazing moment, you know, that I'll never ever forget in my life. And and then I was glowing inside. I was glowing. <laughs> you know, I don't know what nobody else seen, but I felt it. I said, Wow. 
And then when I finally got outside and I was able to look up at the sun and just the the sky, it was beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Yes, indeed. What'd you do? Uh, what, what what was the first thing when you got out? Did you we, go get something to eat? Did you go yes. hug a tree? Like yes. <laughs> the lawyers, we went with the lawyers and we went to some restaurant with all our family, and I didn't even eat. You know, I yeah. I was too excited. I didn't even eat that. I day. think I took me a lap around the parking lot. You remember, I took a lap yeah. around the parking lot. I was just like. <laughs> I can do this, you know what I mean? Like, I'm free, man. Like, I can do this now. Like, right. I can just lap around the park. I can do whatever. No limitations, no, no boundaries. Limits, you can you just know walk. Mean? Just, you know, <laughs> that was go. Uh, yeah. And I want to, you know, as we, as we come towards the uh, conclusion here, um, you know, I've been in this, doing this work for 25 years now. One of the two questions that people ask me the most, there's two questions people always ask me. One is, what happens to the prosecutors? And the answer is nothing, right? Unfortunately, nothing. nothing. Unfortunately, There's no prosecutorial nothing. accountability yeah. whatsoever in this country. It's insane. It's one of the only professions where you basically have total immunity from no matter what you do. Yeah. Um, and there's some, some crazy cases going on right now uh, where uh, whatever. So in Massachusetts, in New York, not just in the South, right? But the other one that everybody always asks me is about compensation. People want to know. They, they hear these stories and they freak out and they're like, tell me the guy got money or mm-hmm. the woman got money. Tell me they got money. And we know a lot of cases people don't get anything. Um, there's there's, a, there's a, a, a really terrible number of cases. There's still 18 states that have no compensation statutes whatsoever. Yeah, that's terrible. Um, but, uh, but in Oklahoma – you guys didn't didn't exactly get rich off of this either. I mean, and and I know you've talked about that before, yeah. but can you? Oklahoma has a cap on it where they give exonerees one hundred and seventy five k, which neither one of us received. That we did receive some something, but due to you know we get out you know loans and you know for cars and so once we did get the money, you know I got one hundred and seven thousand, and. It should have been 175, but I had to pay the loans back, you know. But then I get 170, and here I am with 107 thousand dollars. You know, I have no management skills, you know, nothing. So, you know, I paid off some cars, bought new furniture, and but basically, you know, it's eight months later, and I don't have a dime, you know, because I, I pretty much, you know, squandered it, you know. And it was a learning experience. I didn't let it get me down or nothing. You know, I just know I got to work harder and do, make better decisions in the future. So you can't be killed, and you also there's nothing that can get you down. I mean, it's an <laughs> no. amazing character. No, life is really beautiful out here. It really is. So, you know, it's a, it was a learning experience for me. That's how I take it. And oh, what yeah. about you? I mean, I agree. It was definitely a learning experience for me. Yeah, so, I, I, I mean, I learned from, from that situation as well. I mean, I still have you know, a significant amount of, of money that I'm trying to invest in things like that. I've, I've stayed uh, with employment. I've been working consistently, you know, since I've been free and, and trying to maintain that while I, I go through uh, my process of uh, earning my certification for personal training. Like, that's my true goal, you know, in my career. And if people, uh, if people are listening, some people that are listening are in the Tulsa area. You're still in Tulsa, right? I'm in uh, uh, Houston, Texas now. Actually. Oh, you're in Houston. Okay. Yeah, so if Houston. people are in Houston, they're going, hey, I'm looking for a trainer. How do they contact you? Uh, they can contact me on uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, 
I'm on Snapchat. I'm on. What's what's, what's your, your handle? What's your oh, handle? it's uh, Mr. Swagger seven six four. Mr. M I S T E R M R S W A G G A H seven six four. Okay, that's M R S W A G G A H seven six four. Yeah. Contact Malcolm and get in shape. Because yeah, he's in exactly. shape. But trust me. Oh, or they can get me on Facebook. It's just my regular name, Malcolm Scott. Okay. So, you know, they don't have to go through all the numbers and things if they don't want to. Okay. <laughs> and, and, uh, and DeMarco, you're up to some really interesting yes, stuff now, yes, too. You yes, got a book. I, I have a some... book, which I brought. You know, I wanted you to see it, you mm-hmm. know, in person, the manuscript that's typed up. And, you know, I have, I'm a co-host of Actual Innocence, a podcast with Brooke Giddings. Mm-hmm. And I have a podcast documentary called Buried Alive. And I've been listening to Buried Alive and Actual Innocence, and I recommend both of them highly mm-hmm. to anyone who's a fan of, of, this, uh, of this genre, anyone who's interested in learning about these uh, situations and these cases. Those are two of the best podcasts that are out there. So uh, Buried Alive is, is, is one of them, and Actual Innocence is the other, both with Brooke Giddings, who does an incredible job considering yes, she's definitely. all on her own. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, and so, so the book, uh, is it, do you have a name for the book? Buried Alive. Buried Alive. Is there a way, do you want people to contact you? Do you do public speaking? Yes, do you have yes. a, a interest for maybe there's somebody out there might be a book agent or might be somebody that could help you with that uh-huh. pursuit. So how do people reach out to you? And a goal of mine is I really want to team up with Malcolm and travel around because I'm, I'm I am a motivational speaker. I go to schools and I'm on Instagram, Buried Alive 22. I'm on Facebook, DeMarco Carpenter. And I'm also, I have a goal I've always had this goal, you know, I was always a hoop star going back to high school, middle school, but I always wanted to play in a celebrity, the NBA all-star game, you know, because it's obvious that I can't go to the NBA now, but the celebrity all-star <laughs> game, I, I plan on playing it. I actually got a video on YouTube, it's called 22 DeMarco, and my name is spelled D-E-M-A-R-C-H-O-E, 22 DeMarco, and you can go watch this video, and I also want to do some acting. So if anybody can help me get into the acting business, you know, I'm definitely up for some acting. Okay, so we got uh, Buried Alive 22 is the Instagram. I know yes. that because I follow you, and uh-huh. I'm going to follow you after today, too. Um, that's Buried Alive 22, number 22. Yeah. And then DeMarco Carpenter uh, on Facebook, Facebook, which is D-E-M-A-R-C-H-O-E. And then Carpenter, we all know how to spell Carpenter. So everybody listens to the show knows how to spell uh-huh. Carpenter. So, um, so... As we wrap up, we have a tradition on wrongful conviction, which is that, well, first of all, I want to remind everybody, someday you may find yourself on a jury. Remember what you're hearing today. Remember that what you're being told may not be the truth and that the people who, are, who you trust to tell you the truth may not be acting in, the, in, in your best interest or society's best interest, and you have to be woke. So stay woke and pay attention. Uh, I have another question, or just really a statement, and this is this is real bizarre. Malcolm has a brother that's in prison that's been there 27 years for a murder he didn't commit. He's in the county right now fighting for, you know, hopefully he'll be released here in September. But, you know, Oy. what is the odds of having two brothers in prison for something they didn't do? Wow. Corey all, Atchison. Corey Atchison. All the evidence is pointing at other people, but, you know, Cullen is also, Eric Cullen is also working on that case as well. I'll talk to Eric about it, um, and we'll see what we can do. So now comes the time, which is, I think, probably everybody's favorite part of the show, when I stop talking, 
and I just turn the microphone over to each of you guys just for any final thoughts that you want to share, anything at all that's on your mind that you want to share with the audience because we have a big audience out there, and I know they're going to want to hear what you have to say. Who wants to go first? Yeah, sure, sure. i like to go first. I just want to, like, my message is to the youth, you know. I would like to, you know, I like to see that I want the kids to see that I come from this here and I stay strong. You know, I kept the faith. And I just want y'all to know if I can do it, then y'all don't have to go through everything that I went through to accomplish goals. You know, y'all can do it. You know, just stay stay strong and believe. That's it. Malcolm. First of all, I just want to say uh, thank you, Jason, for allowing thank me you. to come in and, and, and uh, talk and tell our story. And I really appreciate what you do. And uh, I also want to say just that I hope that us sharing what we're, we're sharing with you today inspires, gives encouragement and inspiration to many people out there. Not simply those who are incarcerated for crimes they didn't commit, but those who may be going through anything, any hardships in life that they feel like there's no way I can get through this because you can the human spirit is very resilient. It's very, very strong, a lot stronger than we realize. I never thought that I would fight my way back through a life plus 170 years. But with the help of really good people like the Innocence Project, Eric Cullen, you know, and guys like that, a lot of these were students who gave of themselves without payment. I appreciate that. And I want you all out there to know, you know, anytime you may get on a jury or anything like that, know that pay close attention to what's going on. Don't just be so quick to be ready to convict someone or whatever. And, and that goes for everyday people in society. Pay attention. Be awoke, as he said. Be aware of what's going on and know that a lot of these things can happen to people, innocent people do sometimes get the bad end of the stick. And I need society to really see that and know that. And maybe if more of us are aware of it, we'll start to do more about it. And that is my mission, is that we start to do things about it, to make a change for the better. And give, and a lot of these guys that come out, help give them a better chance for reintegration back into society. Help them. Because if you want them to change, if you want them to do better, you have to give them an opportunity to see better things in a better way of life. And that's me. Well said, Malcolm, and thanks, thanks, Jason, for having us. Well, I'm just going to say that this has been uh, an extraordinary experience for me, listening to you guys and learning, and um, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate everybody listening. And... Um, this has been uh, a, a, a sort of a historic episode of Wrongful Conviction. So thanks for coming in, Malcolm and DeMarco, and sharing your story. All right. Thank Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. 
I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number One and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.